Some of my first memories are based on trying to be good and not succeeding. I don't think I ever tried to be bad. I might have um, tried to get even with one of my sisters or something, not my brothers, because they were 11 and 13 when I was born, so you don't try to get even with guys that are that much bigger than you, but um, trying to get even with my sisters, so maybe I tried to be bad a little bit, but not much. My parents were um, regular old farm folks, and they thought their children should be good, and they thought if they weren't good, that something should be done about it. I remember being spanked very, I was going to say effectively, but it wasn't always as effective as they wished, but very noticeably. Um, if, I, if I said bad words, my mother thought my mouth was unclean and should be cleaned out, and we had what we called Felsnepha soap. And she would wash my mouth out with Felsnepha soap. It doesn't make a lot of bubbles, but it's very effective. Um, I learned something. To try not to get caught. <laughs> I was a typical kid. You get naughty, you get caught, you get spanked, you get your mouth washed out. Try not to get caught. And that worked a little bit, except I had a problem. I grew up in a home where we went to church every week, pretty much every Sabbath. Not my first Sabbath. I was born on a Sabbath morning. But the next Sabbath, I was probably in church with one of my older brothers or sisters carrying me. I was the eighth of nine. And um, they taught me at Sabbath school that Jesus sees you all the time. And that ruined my whole plan of not getting caught. You know, I was supposed to be good. But sometimes for a kid, it was hard to know what is good and what is bad. Sometimes you get spanked and you wonder why, and sometimes you don't get spanked and you smile because you didn't get caught, but sometimes it's hard to know what's good and what's bad. I think as early as birth, children equate hurting as bad and feeling good as good. And there's some adults that still live that way, sad to say. But as we get a little older, it becomes more what's sociably acceptable and what's not sociably acceptable. If your friends think it's cool, if your friends encourage you to do it, you don't worry if it's good or bad, you do it. Because it's good for making friends. And we don't think about that it might be bad. Sometimes we know that, and we try to be bad with our friends and not get caught. Or we try to make sure people know when we're good with our friends because we'll get a little praise and cookies or something. You know, to make a decision based on what's morally right or wrong, they tell us that our minds aren't capable of that for brain development until we're up to 18 to 25 years old to really base your decisions on right and wrong on just morally instead of what feels good, what doesn't feel good, what hurts, what doesn't hurt. What makes something right and good? I used to wonder that. I think that we can say that it's right because it works for salvation, ours or others. It's God's way of life, safe eternity, brings happiness, completeness. And there's examples we live with that we know and we still don't always do it. Um, I remember as a kid, 
grew up on a dairy farm. We hunted, we fished, and we butchered, and we ate well. And I really laugh at vegetarians. What is wrong with them? And then I got a little older, and I started realizing, you know, when I left home, the first time I really left home was the year of college, and then second year of college, I skipped that, and I went and I bummed around Europe. And I didn't dare to eat the meat in Europe because I had learned what meat to trust and not. What we raised or hunted, we thought was safe, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't go to McDonald's buy a hamburger. We knew, I mean, I don't know why people complain about vegetarian burgers, because most of McDonald's burgers are more vegetarian than meat. I mean, they mixed all kinds of stuff into the burgers, and we didn't dare to eat them. And we had seen how people raised beef, and we didn't dare to eat the beef. So I didn't eat meat for the year I bummed around Europe. And I come back home, and we were butchering. There two after I got back, we butchered Ellie Mae. Ellie Mae was, uh, my dad had a Holstein, registered Holstein herd, and, and, and then we had one brown Swiss. And he crossed her with a Brahma, and he crossed the offspring. And he always kept the offspring from these weird crosses. And Ellie Mae, we couldn't tell what she was, but she was weird looking, but she was good eating. But we butchered her that day, and I ate lots of hamburgers for supper, and um, when I say lots, we used to eat a lot, and um, I hadn't had meat in many months. Well, I still remember one of the first times I ate meat, we had stripples. You know, I could taste stripples for the next three days, it seemed like, every time I burped. I couldn't digest that soy stuff. Well, that happened with LMA. I tried eating meat after being many months without it, and I couldn't digest it well. Well, I known from my reading and stuff that probably eating meat wasn't the best way to go, but, but you know, what's really right about the way we eat? <laughs> now, if you're not a vegetarian, don't feel too bad because I think there's something worse than meat. I love ice cream. A&W <laughs> root beer floats. The old ones in the glass mug, they were good. You know, if on the way home today an a &W was there and they didn't charge us on Sabbath, I would have a hard time. No, anyway. <laughs> you know, we know what's good and we still don't do it. We know what's better and we still don't do it. There, there used to be this idea that if people knew right from wrong, they would always choose right. And I remember when I was a kid in school in about fourth grade, my older brothers and sisters started laughing and talking because they were going to get sex education in school now. Because the authorities finally understood that the problem with so many teenage students getting pregnant and stuff was because they didn't understand, and if we taught them, there would be no more. And that's why there's no trouble with it today. <laughs> you know, knowing something doesn't make you not do it. Knowing it's bad for you doesn't make you not do it. We're addicted to sin. You know, if knowledge was really the answer, there wouldn't be any drunks or gamblers or, or all other kinds of things I could name, and I have to be careful because then I'll start stepping on my own toes and I don't want to look too hurt up here in front of you. Time-wasting. We'd all be good students. We'd study hard. We'd all be doing a lot of things we're not doing if we all did what we know is right for us all the time. We're taught that we have choice, free choice, and we're happy for that. Growing up, I mean, if, if, if we knew we were going to lose our freedom of choice, we'd be really upset. But what we don't get 
taught too much about growing up or don't get trained into us really is, yes, you've got a free choice, but with it comes consequences, and those come. You don't have a choice on that. You make the choice, and you get the consequences. But somehow, I didn't pick up on that very well very early in life. Free choice is a gift, but you can't leave the consequences on the shelf. You're going to take them too. Why is something bad? You know, if it's good because it leads to salvation, then it's bad because it leaves another direction. Bad because it hurts somebody. Bad because it brings unhappiness. Bad because it takes us away from God. It's not so hard to understand the difference between good and bad. And yet, we do bad. When I moved to New York, let's see, when was I here? It was way before I was here. It was before I went to Pontepay back as a principal. It was right after my first teaching job in Benito, Oregon. I moved back to New York. I was a young man, about 30 years old, a wife and two children. And I was the principal of the church school at Union Springs, New York. And they had the neatest system back there. Because everybody pays taxes, everybody's kids ride the school bus. And everybody rode the bus into the public school, and in the public school ran a bus up to our school. And teachers, get this, all of our students arrived at the same time. And at the end of the day, all of our students left at the same time. Hallelujah. The teachers are smiling. I remember here at Pendleton, when I closed the gym up at the end of the school day because the kids would just stay until 5, 6 o'clock, I opened the gym before school. Some of you might remember that. You'd come to school as early as you want, playing the gym free. But after school, it was closed. You waited in the classroom until your rides came. That way the kids didn't stay till 5 o'clock. It's no fun to sit there with Mr. Quayle in the classroom after 3.30. They all left together. They all came together, and I was there teaching. And the bus driver for the bus that hauled the kids from the public school up to our school was the Seventh-day Adventist. As he put it, he was kind of a nothing Seventh-day Adventist because he wouldn't accept a position in a church other than membership because he had a secret problem. He was weak. He didn't think many people knew it, but we all knew it. He smoked. And he felt very guilty about his smoking. But one day, when he'd been hauling the kids for a while, he got so he would stop by our school and visit with me. After he hauled the kids down to the public school and made his bus run, he lived right next to our school, he would stop there and talk to me for a while. And, you know, so the kids are gone, but he's there. Anyway, and I'd see him coming, oh, here's Dan, and I've got this to do. And I said, but he comes in there one day, and we're talking a little bit, and it was kind of fun. I like to talk, and sometimes I listen. And we talked a bit, and, and he um, pulled out a cigarette. And then he realized what he's doing. Uh, I guess I shouldn't do this in here. And he headed outside, and I said, you shouldn't do it out there either. He comes over and starts tapping me in the chest. You know, that's always a nice feeling. If you want to be my friend, I never said I want to be your friend. I didn't say that. But if you want to be my friend, you will not talk to me about my smoking. Okay. And then I said something that I don't think was from me. I believe because I asked him every day, but the Holy Spirit said something through me. I asked him every day to work through me with these kids. I was scared to get in front of a load of kids without the Holy Spirit. I said, okay, I won't say another thing to you about your smoking until you ask me to. That wasn't in my mind. He looked at me funny, and he went out and smoked, and I went out with him and stood up and went from him, and we talked. 
Then he coughed and we talked, and he smoked and he coughed and we talked. He was 10 years older than I, so he was 40 at the time. He'd start smoking when he was 10. And I was there a couple of years, and we did get to be friends. I mean, we had kind of fun because our school burned wood. A wood burning stove in a school was really fun. Um, you know, when the kids come in and they're all antsy and wild, and you feel like a relaxed afternoon, you close the windows all up tight, and you build the fire up, and they're all. <laughs> it, it was really good. In grades five through eight, it worked. But we burned wood, and somebody discovered our wood pile behind our school, and they started stealing our wood. We knew they were stealing our wood, but we had old metal on top of it, old roofing, and I fixed some little props up under it with some electric switches that would call our make the phone dial and call us when somebody moved those. And we got up there with the police one time and chased a skunk away, but the next time we came, there was tracks, and he would after them, and he was an ex-deputy sheriff. So he would after the tracks, and he had CB radio, and I had a CB in the office, and I had a phone line in the office, so I could sit and talk between him and the police. And we told the police our tracks, and he was following them. Police knew him enough to not worry about that, and he followed them, and he found them, and he started catching up with them, and they tried to get away with a van full of wood, and they rolled it into a ditch, and, and we got them. And the police get there, and um, they called a tow truck, and a tow truck came, and a tow truck driver was very angry. He came from the Chevy dealer there in town, and he comes with his tow truck, and he's very angry because the driver of the van was his son. Very embarrassed. And they called me up and said, what are you going to do? And was, the police asked me, are you going to press charges? I said, yes, that means jail for him. Said, Put him in jail. And everyone thought it was too harsh. But he'd been stealing our wood. So they come to me and says, oh, are you going to press charges on this? I says, if he has all of the wood that has been stolen returned, and it's been this much, the pile came to here and to here and to here, if he brings all that wood back, by such and such a court date, we'll drop charges. He got the wood back, dropped charges. Meantime, Dan comes to me one day and he says, Leonard, what did you mean? You wouldn't say anything to me about smoking until I asked. Are you asking? Well, I guess so. I guess I'm asking. As you can't quit for very long. As I know I've quit a lot of times. You like to smoke. I like to smoke. But you know you shouldn't smoke. I know you shouldn't smoke. And he was getting exasperated at me because I wasn't saying anything he didn't already know. I was, Dan, smoking is stronger than you are. You can't fight it. You're fighting the wrong fight. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible to not smoke, Dan. He looks at me. But it's bad for me. Do you know it's bad for you? And you still do it? Yeah. Dan, you're fighting the wrong fight. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I've fought a good fight. I've quit smoking. I've caught a, fought a good fight. I've quit lying, cheating, swearing, stealing. No. I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. Your fight is for faith, not against sin. Sin is stronger than you are. If you're fighting sin, you're fighting a losing fight, and we're all fighting sin. I've asked everyone, no, I didn't ask all of you, but if you're not, talk to me after church and what you did never, no, anyway. We're fighting sin. It's this life, and it's a long fight, a bad fight. Fight is to have faith. He says, well, how do I have faith? So faith's a gift from God. 
So if faith is a gift from God, and I think we can all agree with that, then if you don't have enough faith, whose fault is it? It's your fault for not opening it, because it is there for you. You have to exercise it. Joshua, think you can beat me in a foot race? If we ran out this afternoon and I raced you and I beat you by a little bit, think you could beat me next year? How? Move your feet faster. And practice and practice and practice and exercise. You can build your strength in any area you want, wherever your real interest is. You can build your faith with exercising it. What is faith, really? Faith is a relationship with God where you're willing to trust him more than you do anything else. When you start trusting him to lead you right. And it doesn't always start with tobacco. If tobacco is your thing, I don't know. We all have our things that are stronger than us. Tobacco is Dan's thing. Dan never had a problem with alcohol, but somebody else does. I don't think he had a problem with honesty. He always seemed honest to me, and I knew him for many years. We're still good friends. But we all have those spots where we're weak. We need faith. Faith in God. Faith that he has a plan for us. Faith that he gives us strength. Faith that his ways work. Faith that, you know. What have you found about God that really works in your life? Have you found out that Sabbath is a blessing yet? Or are you just doing it because you're supposed to? I'm sure there are people in this church that are here because their parents carried them in. That's why I went to church for many years. First, because my parents carried me in, or my older brothers and sisters. And later, because I could walk in by myself, but that's where I went every Sabbath, and they held my hand to make sure I went. And I mean, I didn't go to church for the right reason. But you know, if you teach school for a few years, you start realizing the joy of Sabbath. And I think it's the same with almost any other work. The joy of Sabbath. You know, I even enjoy Sabbath when I'm retired. My week is great. Five Sundays, Friday, and Sabbath. Friday's different because I know tomorrow's Sabbath, so I better finish up the jobs. But all, the, all week, I can do what I used to do on Sundays. Do what I want for the home and to take care of us here, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, go to school and take care of all the kids. And then, you know. But I have learned the joy of Sabbath. I even learned the joy of paying tithe and offering that the Lord pays back. That's one place he said, try me, test me. Cast your bread on the waters, it'll come back. And it works. Paying tithe works. And I've learned to trust God in other areas. Sorry, was that Adam? I did become a vegetarian and it's work. Um, <laughs> but you have to try what God has to see if it works in some areas for others. There's still some areas I don't understand about why God said do this or that or not. I understand more than I used to. But I still try to go the way he directs because I found that it works. I moved away from Union Springs and went to Pontepe as a missionary. And I came back and I saw Dan. He says, how you doing? He says, great. Because you quit. See yeah. That's how. I just started studying. Because he says, how do you get faith? Where does faith come from? I had learned something in college from a guy named Morris Venden. Some of you old people might remember a guy named Morris Venden. You remember his worship book? The title of his worship book? Faith that works. He helped me understand faith. But he did a week of prayer, weekend or something, when I was in college. And on the way out, I stopped and talked to him for a few minutes. 
But his whole thing was, if you want faith, you feed your faith. How do you do it? Well, you can't have faith in something you don't know. Um, too many of you know me too well, so it wouldn't be fair. But, you know, if I said, do you want to go for an airplane ride, and you didn't know as a pilot, you might say, but if you come out to my house and watch me take off and land a few times and talk to a few people that have ridden with me a few times, you start saying, oh, maybe I'll try. Your faith builds by growing a relation, an understanding. Oh, the guy really can fly the plane. He's landed and taken off 47 times now, and it looks like he's, you know, let me see your logbook. And I show him there, and they count. The logbook tells how many times I've taken off and landed in an airplane, except for the first few months. I didn't know I was supposed to put it in there, but um, it shows how many times I've taken off and landed the airplane. And I've never wrecked it. And you see some of these things and you start trusting a little bit. Well, it's the same with God. The more you know him, the more you trust him. Amen. And Morris Menon says, study, share, and pray. And you'll gain faith. So I started working at that. Study, pray, and share. Study, pray, and share. And, and if I get invited back here to preach again after this, you will hear me do a sermon sometime on prayer and sometime on studying and sometime on sharing and what that means to me and what's worked for me because I want to share that to help it work for somebody else that's in the same fight that hasn't found it working yet. Dan tried it. And he says, it's amazing. You know, I had a regular schedule for getting cigarettes. Every time I stopped and filled my truck up with gas, she knew how many cartons or cases or whatever of cool cigarettes to give me. He says, and, and you know, he says, I've got to tell you, I went down there one day to get gas I thought, yes, I'm gonna get some. I just gotta have one more. I'll tell her just, you know. And he walked in, and a woman turned and started to get his cigarettes, and she looked and says, Oh, you don't get these anymore, do you? And he said, I could not ask for them because I knew I hadn't told her that. God had to, and I couldn't argue. So, no, no, I don't. He said he went in there that day to get cigarettes, and he didn't. But he never smoked again. And he said, and it wasn't because I was fighting tobacco. He says, I just kept smoking. You said I could keep smoking. I just kept smoking. But I started studying, praying, and sharing. And he saved enough money in the first year to buy a stereo system for his house and pay for the tuition for his kids in school. He was smoking a lot. A couple of packs a day. And apparently they're expensive. Dan's faith grew in many areas. I said, so, you're an elder in a church now. Yeah, I'm an elder in a church. Preaching sermons. I like copy of your first sermon. Why? Because I like sermons on fighting against sin. How do you know that's what it was? Because I know you. Study, prayer, and sharing. You know, growing up, this time of the year, I know it's Christmas. I didn't say Merry Christmas yet, but Merry Christmas. I hope you had a Merry Christmas. I sure did. All our families here, they're back there in a row. It's cool, except one's up here. Josh was my grandson, oldest one. Janetta's, for those that remember who she was. Anyway, I remember growing up, people would talk about New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolution, what's that? Well, it's a resolution that this year I am going to become a faster runner so I can beat Grandpa. Um, I'm going to study so I get better grades in school. I'm going to, going to, going to, and you get all kinds of ideas what they're going to do this coming year. I tried it once or twice, but you know, it's no fun to try something when you know you're going to fail. New Year's resolutions, I don't know if you do them. I almost preached a different sermon today. It's a sermon I haven't written yet. That I was inspired, inspired? No. What I thought about, came to my mind, whatever the right word is, while we're studying this quarter's lessons. 
about covenants and agreements with God. Each of us needs to have an understanding and agreement with God. You need to have a relationship with God where you say, God, I'll do this and this for you, and please do this and this for me. That's our daily prayers. It should be. And I think that a good covenant, resolution, agreement would be something in your life to help you realize as you enter this new year, I need this in my relationship with God. Whether it's the study, the prayer, the sharing, or something else. Look how it worked for Israel. Yes, they messed up, but as a nation, they kept growing and growing. And strengthen and encourage each other. After Nehemiah and Ezra, they were pretty strong for a fair bit of time. And after a few other kings that we studied about in our lesson this morning, you get strong leaders, they were. But don't just lean on your leaders. You know, that whole Old Testament thing is gone. That part of the covenant's gone where you have to go to the priest to get to God. You go to God now, Jesus Christ. Make your covenant with him. Talk to him. Share with him. Start your new year with a covenant, a resolution, an agreement, whatever you want with him. Dan did become my friend. Still is. He grew through that and he's applied it in other areas. I learned a long time ago to fight the fight of faith instead of fighting against sin. No more sin, right? The problem is we are so far away from God that as soon as we start realizing, oh, I don't smoke anymore. You realize something else you're doing that's between you and God. Don't let it discourage you. He's working on you. He'll keep working on you. But I don't believe you'll ever get to the point in this life where you feel like, oh, God's finally done with me. And if, he do, if you do get there, you're on dangerous ground, I believe. You know... I get a lot of questions about different things, and one of the questions that's come to me is um, the rightness and wrongness of being a Seventh-day Adventist compared to other religions. I mean, I've got some good friends who are not Adventists, and, you know, and even different Adventists, you know, look what they're wearing. Should they wear that? Look what they're eating. Should they eat that? Look what they're drinking. They, what's right and wrong? I can't determine for you what's right and wrong. He's got curly hair. Why would he even wear curly hair to I, I don't, you know. We're all different. Is it wrong for him to have curly hair? Or wrong that mine's straight? I've got a beard. He, well, so does he. So I, um, he does, you know. What's right and wrong for us in church or outside of church? We try to determine that. And, you know, somebody mentioned flying earlier today. I, I happen to have an old airplane that I fly when I can, and, and I enjoy it. But I can walk down a runway, and it feels a little bit bumpy to me. And I need to get it rolled this spring so it won't be bumpy and I mean, when you land on an aluminum airplane, it's like being inside of a drum rolling down a road when you land in that thing on a bumpy runway. But um, if I'm 50 feet above it, buzzing that runway, it looks pretty smooth. And if I'm up a couple thousand feet looking for a place to land for emergency, I've seen some stuff that looked pretty smooth, but when I've walked it later, I thought, good thing I didn't land here. I'd have been upside down and dead. And, you know, flew over the Grand Canyon once in a jet, 37,000 feet. It looked like a scratch on your surface. How high up is God? What is the difference between you and I the way he sees us?
We're all down here. We've all messed up royally. We need his help, and we need each other's help. So this year, have your resolution with God. Think about others. That's his law. That's his rule. Love others. Love him. Love others. Find a way in your life to make a difference with your relationship with God and with those around you. And I believe you'll have a good year. And this big fight, it'll continue. You'll be fighting sin as long as you live on this earth. Well, no, no, no. You'll be fighting sin as long as you're still in the first chapter of living on this earth. But when we come back and it's cleaned up, then we won't be fighting sin anymore. Make it easier for yourself by building a relationship with God and easier for others by reflecting God's love to them. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your love. We're thankful for giving your love to us so that we can learn to grow in it and to share it. Help each of us, Lord, to understand your love for us, to grow in it, to take the time we need for you each day, to study, share, communicate with you and others, that we can truly represent you. That starting this week and, and starting a new year, that we will rightly represent you, that we'll grow in you, and we'll find some of the joy that you have planned for us, the happiness, and the complete life. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.